Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of May 25th, 2023. I'm Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Graduation Day is about more than a diploma at Alameda Intentional High School, International High School, by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Exploring Historic Preservation in Lakewood by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Rain abates for Pomona High School graduation. Thunderstorms broke up just before the ceremony began at NAAC by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Arvada Food Pantry Community Table gets creative to combat shortages by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Rain fails to dampen Golden High School commencement by Deborah Grigsby for the Golden Transcript. Takeaways from Jeffco K-8 and Middle School Enrollment by Yesenia Robles, Chalkbeat, Colorado, for the Golden Transcript, and following up with various articles. Graduation Day is about more than a diploma at Alameda International High School by Joe Davis. High schools all over Jefferson County are holding graduations through the end of May. For most of those graduating seniors, that diploma means a passage to the next stage of life. For Alameda International High School seniors, graduation comes with even higher stakes. Valedictorian Lok Tran described coming to the U.S. in his sophomore year knowing only a few words of English. He described working hard to maintain a 4.0 GPA during his entire tenure at AIHS while learning English. Trent credits his friends and teachers with helping him get to the podium on graduation. He ended his speech with a few words in Vietnamese for his family in the audience. This multilingual experience filled the day as students and families celebrated their cultures along with other achievements. These were represented by each student in the form of a stole. The stole is a special sash that's worn around the graduate's neck. It drapes down the front of the graduation gown. There were stoles emblazoned with first generation for the students who were the first to graduate in their families. The silver stole with blue trim is to represent first generation graduates, explained assistant principal Marissa Duran. These are students who are first to graduate in their family. We had 48 this year. While stoles are for the students who completed the IB diploma program, purple stoles are for the IB career pathway program. These special sashes representing the students' cultures were a bit different, according to Dern. Quote, the cultural serape can be worn by any student and represents their country of origin. 
she said. You might have seen the stole that is half Mexican flag and half American flag. These are worn by dual citizens. I would estimate about 60 students wore serapes on graduation day. The IB diploma is the international baccalaureate diploma given to students who complete a special program while fulfilling the classes needed for a regular diploma. The IB Diploma Program is an intense college preparatory program designed for pr to prepare students for college and life beyond school, according to Dern. She went on to say that the IB Diploma classes require students to complete, quote, a theory of knowledge class, write a 4,000-word research paper on a topic of their choice, and set and meet goals around creativity, activity, and service. It's six extensive courses over two years. Graduates wore the stoles, including those for IB diplomas and the serapes with pride. However, for so many others, graduation held a much bigger meaning. From being the first to graduate to fulfilling a late parent's dream, the class of 2023 has many additional reasons to celebrate. Juan Lopez Garcia and Edwin Lopez Garcia are twin brothers who came from Guatemala. According to Duran, the twins completed their studies with honors, including the IB diploma, on their own. Quote, their parents still live in Guatemala, and due to circumstances beyond their control, they could not live with their relative here in Colorado. The boys have been living on their own and working the entire time to support themselves, she said. This speaks to the drive and initiative of many of our students, end quote. Juan and Edwin said that their family, despite being at a distance, is their reason to work for working so hard to graduate. Both teens are first-generation graduates, another stole that hung around their necks on graduation day. It was like we opened a new season for our family, Edwin said because maybe our parents or grandparents didn't have this opportunity to graduate. Both boys said that their diploma is for generations of family members who could not be there to see them walk. Haley Morgan described how her squad of teachers supported her and her needs throughout her time at AIHS. I've had really good teachers, she said. Trinity Garcia shared that graduation for her means a promise fulfilled to her mom. My mom really wanted it for me, Garcia said. She passed away in October of last year, and it was a really hard time for me. I knew that she wanted me to do this. According to Duran, Garcia is one of the career grad program graduates, students who completed certification for certain careers while also fulfilling the requirements of their diplomas. Luis Mendoza Quinones wore a serape representing Mexico where her, his family comes from. According to Duran, Mendoza Quinones was, quote, a top student while attending both Warren Tech and Alameda. Like Garcia, he's graduating with a career program distinction. The program is Pathways to Teaching. Leo Avelino Gutierrez also completed the Pathways to Teaching program. He accomplished this while starting his junior year, quote, with nary a credit to his transcript, according to Dern. Like the twins, Gutierrez said that graduation day is not just for him. Me being here today is me carrying my whole family with me today, he said. And it's the same thing for when I'm going to go to college. 
Not a lot of them went to college, and a lot of them didn't graduate high school. So graduating high school is a big step for me and my family. Exploring Historic Preservation in Lakewood by Joe Davis May is National Historic Preservation Month, and Lakewood has its own Historic Preservation Commission, which is a bit different than the more widely known National Register and Historic Society's LHPC's Poppy Gullet. Recently spoke with the Jeffco Transcript about what the LHPC is and why it's so important to the community. According to Gullet, the National Register of Historic Places is the most well-known in the community and the country. Properties on the registry, register get a black plaque. All of those sites have basically submitted an application, Gullet said. They come up with a little bit of their history, they send it to the state office, and then they send it off to the National Park Service. And if you're approved, you get a plaque. The plaque comes with benefits, which Gullet said vary from one state to another. The Historic Society is another agency that registers properties on a state level. Then there is a local agency, the Lakewood Historic Preservation Commission. These agencies operate in Lakewood to help property owners recognize, restore, and protect their landmark properties. This means that they also help with gathering funds to help residents preserve their property. Some states are like Colorado, Gullet said. We have this great state historical fund that offers grants to properties that are on the National Registry. You have to apply and all that, but it is an option. And then in every state, you have the opportunity to go after tax credits, and those are at the federal level. Those tax credits help you basically offset the cost of taking care of your historic property. Gullet explained the LHPC is a part of the Certified Local Government Program, and that designation comes with powers that the other agencies do not have. Quotes, there is actually a process to go through for alterations for local landmarks that does not exist for the National Register, she said. And then as far as the Historical Society goes, that's just a great way to recognize the history. It doesn't have any teeth and doesn't convey any of those designation benefits. So you can't go after grants. You can't go after tax credits. Gullet said that getting a plaque is prestigious, but property owners need more. This means help pres preserving, restoring, and protecting their properties. The LHPC has the, quote, original 1960s buildings operated most recently as the Hospice of St. John, and this important property was designated by the city of Lakewood as a local historic site, according to the website. Colorado Community Media covered the project when it started in 2019. Now, Iber Village is an affordable... Hartman goes on to describe how the LHPC helped with suggestions during the renovations offering historic information that helped inform some design decisions. He urges property owners to register their properties because the funding is needed to help preserve many Lakewood properties. According to Hartman, the LHPC and other organizations, quote, can be extremely helpful, then open the doors to lots of good financing. The LHPC has other duties as well, including surveying the city for properties of historic note 
even if that notoriety is hyper-local. Gullett recently made her 2022 Lakewood Historic Preservation Report to the Lakewood City Council. During her presentation, Gullett presented a few findings that she and her team made while surveying, surveying Lakewood. The LHPC's work is all about preserving and protecting properties, which includes surveying, interagency collaboration, and also in aiding property owners as they seek funding. Gullett said that the commission's duties could take a while to list. What she would like the community to know is that properties with any historic significance should be registered with LHPC. We want to get people excited, Gullett said. That means community engagement events like scavenger hunts and talks like the Morse Park survey presentation made on May 23rd at the Visitor Center of Heritage Lakewood Belmar Park. The results of the recent surveys will be available to the public in time. Stay updated, register a property, and find more information on the LHPC webpage. Rain abates for Pomona High School graduation. Thunderstorms broke up just before the ceremony began at NAAC by Riley Dunn. Thunderstorms and heavy rains stayed away long enough to not put a damper on Pomona High School's graduation, which went off without a hitch May 18th at the North Area Athletic Complex. Pomona's graduating seniors were freshmen in 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and lamented the difference in their expectations for high school in comparison with how the last four years played out. There was a sense of perseverance as class speakers looked back on the trying times they endured with their peers early in the pandemic. Pomona's class president, class speaker, and valedictorians gave speeches along with a faculty member selected by the graduating class. Pomona's choir performed for the crowd near the closing of the ceremony. Arvetta Food Pantry Community Table Gets Creative to Combat Shortages by Riley Dunn. Rising food costs, changes to grocery store procedure, and supply chain issues have made it hard for some people to put food on the table. A problem exacerbated by other factors in one's life that could lead to food insecurity. For Arvada-based food pantry community table, facing these challenges is just another day at the office. Since 2019, the nonprofit has seen a 30% increase in the number of people it serves. Community table now works with 1,700 families or roughly 5,000 individuals a month. In the past, community table relied on grocery rescue programs, wherein grocery chains donated food that's past its best by date but the aforementioned issues impacting food availability have mostly run that well dry. Rocky Baldassare, Community Table's Director of Food Programs, said that while the nonprofit used to have about 30 pickups a week from grocery store, from grocery rescue programs, that number has dwindled with entire categories of food, including meat and produce, disappearing from availability. Baldassar said that some chains have employed practices that keep food on the shelf longer than in the past. Grocery stores are not donating as much as they used 
as they used to at all, Baldessar said. Now they're trying to sell food as late as they can. Thankfully for the nonprofit and the 5,000 people it serves monthly, the Arvada community has stepped up to support where it can. After Community Table rescinded its boundaries at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, it opened its doors to the entire surrounding community, not just Arvada, which it had primarily served in the past. The food pantry remained open throughout the pandemic, offering food and other services to vulnerable populations in trying times. The support appears to be twofold as Community Table expanded its borders. Residents of surrounding communities have pitched in to keep food on the shelves for their less fortunate neighbors. Quote, we fortunately have a great community, primarily in Arvada and Wheat Ridge, that stepped up to help out the citizenry, said Martin, Sandy Martin, Community Table's CEO, said. When the pandemic hit, we got rid of boundaries because we were one of the few pantries that stayed open. The last thing we want to do is turn people away. That's not meeting our mission. Martin and Baldassar said that in addition to donations, the pantry has to purchase a lot of the food it offers, which is only possible thanks to the generosity of donors. Baldassar said the nonprofit purchases about 5,000 pounds of food a week, and that used to be a monthly expense. Rising food insecurity has prompted Community Table to allow people to pick up more food. In the past, people were limited to grocery to shopping at the nonprofit's grocery store 12 times a year. Now they may shop twice a month. Folks can also pick up free boxes of food as often as needed, though they do not get to select the food themselves if they opt for the box. We decided that twice a month would be more realistic for families. That's on par with what a lot of other places have gone to, Baldassar said. In addition to combating food shortages, Community Table has gone above and beyond for the people it serves, partnering about a dozen local organizations and nonprofits to provide a whole lot more than food. Community Table has on-site medical and dental care, showers, laundry, mental health counseling, housing navigation, enrollment in government assistance programs, and other services. Martin said she hopes that offering on-site services in the heart of Arvada, Community Table is located at 8555 West 57th Avenue near Old Town, will help people who may not have the means to bounce around a bunch of different locations trying to get help. A lot of people are used to are using us that never thought they would need to, Martin said. We kind of consider ourselves a hub in Arvada for these types of services. It's difficult to get down to the county building in Golden, we're right in the community. The following are a list of Community Tables partnerships. Medical Care, Stride Medical, Red Rocks Community College, Wednesdays. Community Table has partnered with Stride Medical to provide primary care services for people who are uninsured or underinsured. Stride comes to Community Table's campus every Wednesday and Red Rocks Community College will soon begin offering medical services at the nonprofit as well. Dentistry, no smile left behind, third Wednesday of the month. 
Once a month, No Smile Left Behind performs basic dentistry for patients on Medicaid or those who are un uninsured. The nonprofit cannot provide dental surgeries, but can give referrals for those in need. Shower and Laundry Truck, Bayaud, The Dignity Project. Fridays, Tuesdays, forthcoming. Every Friday, Bayaud Enterprises Shower and Laundry Truck rolls up to Community Table, offering free, hot showers and complimentary laundry. The Dignity Project has a similar truck that will begin visiting Community Table on Tuesdays starting soon. DMV Services, DMV to go. Third Friday of the month. DMV to go offers full DMV services, including driver's license and car registration for all community members on the third Friday of the month. Mental health. Ardent Foundation Workshops, Advocates for Recovery. Quarterly, Tuesdays. The Ardent Foundation provides quarterly workshops on mental health, the last of which focused on coping mechanisms and stress relief, and the next of which will be in July. These sessions are open to the whole community. Advocates for Recovery provide weekly meetings with clients interested in recovery services every Tuesday. Government Assistance, Jefferson County Benefits in Action, Wednesdays. On Wednesdays, a representative from Jefferson County or one from nonprofits benefit, Benefits in Action come to help folks with enrollment in government assistance programs, including SNAP and WIC. Representatives help clients identify and enroll in programs they might be eligible for. Housing Navigation, City of Arvada, Fridays. Arvada Housing Navigator Lisa Chavez meets with clients on Fridays at Community Table to help them apply for affordable and government-assisted housing. Other Partnerships. In addition to these partnerships, Community Table is working on finalizing a partnership with the Jefferson Center for Mental Health to get a kiosk set up on site. The nonprofit partners with the City of Arvada's One Small Step program for homeless criminal defendants, offering a table with resources outside the courtroom. Community Table also runs five mobile food pantries, Elevado Mobile Home Estates, the Arvada House, Mountain Vista, Highlands West, Mountain Terrace are the communities the nonprofit serves with its mobile pantry spread out from Arvada to Wheat Ridge to Westminster. A partnership with DoorDash's Project Dash allows Community Table to reach 50 individuals who are unable to come to the nonprofit's Arvada campus in person. Baldassar said that staff is evaluating how many people can be included in the free program going forward. The United States Postal Service food drive returned this year after going on hiatus during the pandemic. Community Table has received about 63,000 pounds of food, short of its 80,000-pound goal. Donations for the United States Postal Service food drive will be accepted until Sunday, May 28th. Martin said Community Table's biggest need right now is canned goods. We really need to... We really need donations of canned goods and those kinds of items because those have gone down, Martin said. We're still having supply chain problems. The rising cost of food 
it's increasing for donors' families too, so we don't get as much food as we could use. Martin added that the donated food brings in a variety. As opposed for us going somewhere and buying 10 cases of green beans, they're bringing in carrots and corn and it's giving us a real variety to the store, Martin said. Plus, the community likes to help with this program. Rain fails to dampen Golden High School commencement by Deborah Grigsby. As high school graduations are underway across the Denver metro area, tradition will most certainly be on the agenda. And for high, Golden High School, Colorado's oldest continuously operated high school, rain has become a perennial guest. However, in spite of wet, gloomy skies, 292 beaming seniors proudly walked across the stage May 19th at Alumni Field at Marv K Stadium to receive their diplomas as friends, family, and loved ones watched on, huddled together beneath umbrellas and plastic rain ponchos. I'm sitting here listening to the speeches this morning and I'm looking up and I'm seeing the Marv K from Marv K Stadium. It sort of reminded me of the man who was so important to the city of Golden, to the School of Mines, and to Golden High School. Golden High School Principal Brian Conroy said, And when I first became principal and our very first graduation was in the pouring rain, he pulled me aside and said, The rain is just washing high school off the kids and getting them ready for adulthood. And ready they are. The class of 2023 not only endured the stress of high school, but also the first global pandemic in more than a century. Their thoughts amply reflected in the selection of their class song, Good Riddance by Green Day. Senior speakers Joanna Toy and Abigail Greiner offered classmates uplifting and thoughtful messages for the future. We are the poets and the artists, the engineers and scholars, the writers and the thinkers, Toy said. No matter where we are or what we do, this is our world, one we will have to take responsibility for, one that we already are taking responsibility for. Find your voice. Practice until you can sing with clarity. You can share with compassion. You can teach fairness in whatever way is fitting for you. Greiner's senior address reflected on change and the merits of being like worms. Worms don't have a concept of time, she said. They live in the moment. However, humans are unique because they are aware of time. We should try to be like worms and separate ourselves from counting the seconds. Memories are important to keep, to look back, to smile upon, but we cannot let the desire to live in memories pre prevent us from moving forward. Being a worm, you must live for the now. To be a worm, you must learn to play in the dirt now. Musical selections were performed by the GHS 24th Street Singers. Mr. Paul Evans was the faculty speaker, and the GHS cheerleaders and dance team led the class in the GHS hand jive. Of the graduating seniors this year, the majority plan to attend college. Others will serve in the armed forces or directly enter the workforce. Takeaways from Jeffco K-8s and Middle School Enrollment by Yesenia Robles, Chalkbeat, Colorado. Jeffco school leaders have said identifying middle schools to close will be more complicated than it was with elementary schools. 
That's a daunting challenge for a district that voted to close 16 elementary schools last fall. Leaders plan to recommend to the school board in August which schools to close and to redraw some attendance boundaries and redesignate feeder schools in summer 2024. A look at enrollment, school spending, campus utilization levels, and family property poverty gives a glance at some of the data that may inform Jeffco's decisions. The district's work has been spurred by years of declining enrollments. Even though the number of re residents in Jeffco increased over two decades, the population of school-aged children decreased by 29,918 from 2000 to 2020. Fewer children are being born, according to the district. 2020 marked the lowest number of births recorded in 15 years. The district has not yet identified the criteria to determine which middle and K-8 schools to close or consolidate. In one exception, district leaders have told the Arvada K-8 school community that if it earns a low state rating this fall, triggering possible state action, the district will recommend closure. The school is the only one that is nearing state action for low performance. The district describes its work as data-driven and has published some school data that it may consider in deciding on closures. With elementary schools last year, the district identified for closure or consolidation schools that had fewer than 220 students or were occupying less than 45% of the capacity of their building and had another elementary school within 3.5 miles that could absorb displaced students. Compared with elementary schools, Jeffco's 22 district-managed middle and K-8 school facilities tend to be in better condition and have a narrower range of enrollment and utilization. Some regions, or articulation areas as the district calls them, have only one middle school fed by all elementary schools, further complicating closures. Here are some takeaways about middle schools in Jeffco. On 22 neighborhood middle schools and K-8 schools in Jeffco, 18 are losing more students through the choice process than they attract, and only four students, schools gain students through that process. Colorado law and Jeffco system allow families to send their children to any school in the district or to transfer to schools in other districts that will accept them. Of those 18, four schools lose more students than remained enrolled. Carmody Middle School, for example, had 892 students choose to attend different schools, according to district data, leaving only 626 students at the school. A similar out-migration of students was one of the factors the district cited in emergency school closures, including one two years ago. Nearly all of the Jeffco managed middle schools and K-8 schools are projected to lose students. According to district figures, seven middle or K-8 neighborhood schools will have fewer than 500 students next school year, and three of those schools are already occupying less than 50% of the capacity of their school building. Those three schools are Coal Creek Canyon K-8, Moore Middle School, and North Arvada Middle School. Coal Creek Canyon K-8 is projected to have 91 students next fall. The school currently serves 100 students. 
More middle school is already being considered for consolidation. The school's principal partnered with the principal of Pomona High School in asking the district to approve a plan to consolidate the schools and turn Pomona into a 6th grade through 12th grade school instead. The school district is expecting estimates of the cost of required building upgrades before taking a vote this summer. At the other end of the range, one Jeffco Middle School is over capacity. Three Creeks K-8 in Arvada enrolled 1,112 students. About 8% of the students there qualify for subsidized lunches, a measure of poverty much lower than the district range. This school is the one, only one currently projected to have significant student enrollment growth next year. Among the seven middle and K-8 schools in Jeffco that occupy less than 60% of their building's total capacity, the schools average nearly 50% of students qualifying for free or reduced price lunches, a measure of poverty. The district's overall average for all middle and K-8 schools is 36%. The five schools that occupy more than 80% of their building average, 25% of their students is qualifying for subsidized lunches. Also, schools that have faster enrollment declines are more likely to have more students living in poverty. For example, among 10 schools with projected enrollment declines of more than 5%, an average of almost 42% of students qualify for subsidized meals, compared with about a 32% average at schools that have a small decline or that are projected to be growing. Since schools are funded based on the number of students enrolled, schools with fewer students end up with smaller budgets and aren't able to provide as many resources or learning opportunities as schools with more students. Among the middle schools and K-8 schools that the district is considering closing or consolidating, K through eight schools on average spend more than middle school students, more than middle schools per student. One school, Coal Creek Canyon K through eight, which is serving about 100 students, is spending $21,994 per student, more than 28% over the average per cost per student cost at the district's other K through eight schools. Chalkbeats is a nonprofit news site covering education change in public schools. Colorado pushes to stop relying on rented aircraft to fight wildfires. By Jesse Paul, the Colorado Sun. Colorado is doubling down on its push to rely less on rented aircraft to fight wildfires with the purchase of a second helicopter capable of quickly crisscrossing the state to detect and douse flames. Governor Jared Polis signed the bill on May 11th, allocating $26 million to buy another Firehawk, a converted version of the military's ubiquitous Black Hawk helicopter. The Firehawk's top speed is about 160 miles per hour, and it can quickly slurp up and drop 1,000 gallons of water. When fires aren't burning, the helicopter can be deployed on search and rescue missions. Right now, Colorado has no operational state-owned aircraft that can drop water and retardant on fires. Instead, it relies on contracts with private aerial firefighting companies to respond to blazes across the state. 
Some of those air sources resources are pooled regionally, meaning that the rented helicopters and airplanes serve multiple states at the same time. But that's become an issue as climate change causes dangerously dry conditions across the western U.S. and 20 western U.S. In 2020, for instance, when Colorado has the three largest wildfires in its history, the state struggled to secure the aircraft it needed because there were also fires burning in New Mexico, California, and several other states. We need to be able to control our aerial capacity, Polis said before signing Cinebill 161 at Centennial Airport hangar beside Colorado's first Firehawk a hulking chopper painted red and white emblazoned in the state logo. We do some of that through contract work, but we can also do it, which is a lot better value for taxpayers on an ongoing basis, by purchasing some equipment that is good for decades. State fire officials estimated earlier this year that it would cost about $2.5 million annually for an additional 150-day contract for a large air tanker such as a British Aerospace 146. The Firehawk will operate year-round, though the state will have to hire and pay pilots and is responsible for the chopper's maintenance. The first Firehawk is expected to go into service in the coming weeks once testing and finishing touches are complete. The second chopper could be ready to go as soon as next summer. The helicopters join two single-engine Pilatus PC-12s in Colorado's aerial firefighting fleet. But those planes can only track blazes, not put them out. Other states have much larger wildfire fighting aircraft fleets. The California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, for instance, owns a fleet of more than 50 aircraft, including a mix of airplanes and helicopters. Reuters reports that a Cal Fire aircraft can reach most fires within 20 minutes. The Washington State Department of Natural Resources owns nine helicopters that battle fires. The Alaska Department of Natural Resources also owns a number of wildfire fighting planes. Polis said his administration doesn't have plans to buy more Firehawks or other firefighting aircraft in the near future. We're always going to analyze cost-benefit, he said. We want to make sure that we have the air support we need when we have a fire. And then we're going to look at the most efficient way to get that. The Firehawks are expected to be in service for upward of three decades, though they do require a lot of maintenance. Mike Morgan, who leads the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control, said the Firehawk is the most versatile tool the state could have purchased. It doesn't need to return to an airport after dropping water on flames like a fixed-wing plane. The helicopter can simply dip its snorkel in a pond or pool and quickly fill up for its next drop. Another plus, it has an external water tank instead of carrying a bucket meaning it can fly over homes and roadways that otherwise must be evacuated when other bucket-wielding firefighters, firefighting helicopters are in use. This is probably the best tool in the toolbox we can ask for, he said. The first Firehawk will be stationed at Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport in Jefferson County, though it can be moved around the state and positioned in areas that are forecast to have high fire danger. It's 
unclear where the second chopper will be based. The Colorado Sun co-owns Colorado Community Media as a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy. It is a reader-supported news organization dedicated to covering the people, places, and policies that matter in Colorado. Read more, sign up for free newsletters, and subscribe at coloradosun.com. A 70s Love Story from Casa Bonita Former Cliff Diver Reflects Before Restaurant Reopening by John Renfro It was the 1970s, a time when dinner and a show could mean just about anything. Casa Bonita on West Colfax Avenue in Lakewood was one of those just-about-anything places. It could seat up to 1,100 patrons, entertaining them while they waited on their food. The restaurant, expected to soon reopen following a major renovation by new owners and South Park creators Matt Stone and Trey Parker, doubled as a kind of circus back then. Michael Romero of Denver remembers it all. He was a cliff diver and performer at the restaurant from 1975 to 1981. He made $10 an hour, pretty penny in those days, and he was young and got to do what he loved. Not only that, he found something greater. Meeting Dawn, the love of his life, on the cliffs he jumped off of. She was the first girl they hired as a diver when they opened up, Romero said. She was so beautiful. I thought she was out of my league when I first met her, even though I was a bit of a stud myself. I saw her on the cliff, and apparently she was looking for me too. It was the day after Halloween, 1975. Romero had been a collegiate diver and gymnast at Memphis State University and was invited to be an entertainer at Casa Bonita based on his reputation. Dawn was a standout diver and gymnast at Arvada West High School, where she coached the men's diving team after graduating. Casa Bonita was run by entertainment family entertainment manager formerly from the Ringling Brothers Circus, Romero explained, who was a trapeze flyer and gymnast at the time. Funny enough, the manager and Romero had connections in common leading to his quick hiring. But when Romero got hired, he said he was expected to do a bit more than diving and gymnastics. During his tenure, he'd have to make some costume changes too. The original entertainment manager, he and his wife were the typical circus family. They lived in this big truck-mounted camper and they traveled with the circus, Romero said. We all had to learn how to juggle fire clubs. There was a gunfight. I was a stuntman as well. That meant he had to wear cowboy hats and all kinds of outfits. One act was Romero's favorite. In a King Kong reenactment, he donned a gorilla suit. In the act, he would throw a woman off one of the cliffs into the water below and then jump in after her. I'm the only man in the world that could say he got to dress up in a gorilla suit at Casa Bonita and throw his wife off a cliff and still be married to her 46 years later, he said, laughing. The two married in 1977 and had their son Zachary in 1978. Romero is now looking at the past. Casa Bonita's reputation for good times, but bland, but not horrible food, with a heavy heart. 
He's excited about the reopening to see if it, the great parts of the restaurant are preserved and other parts are better than before, but it will be a bittersweet return. Dawn passed away a few weeks ago. It was such a storybook story. My wife was really just the sweetest thing. Absolutely stunning. Captured the whole room, he said. After her diving days, she became a third grade teacher at Stedman Elementary School in Denver's Park Hill for 35 years, where she affected countless lives. She was so, so good at her job. That's probably the thing she'll be remembered for the most. She's so loved in the Park Hill community. She taught in the same classroom for 35 years, he said. He and his family will return when it opens, and he's anxious to see what it turns out to be, even though everyone is worried it will become a South Park amusement park or something. Romero hopes for the best. He's curious about the claims the menu will improve and hopes the entertainment talent gets paid what they're worth, like he did during his time there. The exact reopening date is still to be determined, though the restaurant has promoted a grand reopening in May. He was excited to return with Dawn to the place that gave them the best gift of all, a lifetime of memories, a love story, and a family to carry it on. She always said it was love at first sight. She went home and called her aunt or grandma and said she met the man she was going to marry before we even went on a date, Romero said. We've always taken people there. We were definitely going to be back. We feel like we're part of the history there. When Romero goes to see the improved Casa Bonita, he'll be thinking of Dawn. It's really bittersweet right now because she really wanted to go, Romero said. An original Casa Bonita server reminisces about the Pink Palace by Joe Davis. Lakewood native Karen Rinsink remembers Casa Bonita from the other side of the pass bar. She was one of the original servers when the restaurant opened in 1974. I was a sophomore at Bear Creek High School in 1974 when the Denver location of Casa Bonita was opening, Rensink said. There was so much buzz about the Pink Palace, and every high schooler in the area was lining up to apply for work there, me included. The only problem was that I was still only 15 and too young to be employed. Rensink had a workaround for that. Back then, all that was needed was to appear to be 16, was the possession of a social security number, which I fortunately had since birth due to a gift of stocks from my grandfather, she said. I flashed that card and bam, I was part of the inaugural class. Rinsing said all the employees were brought in for training before the restaurant officially opened. When we met for interviews, it wasn't even finished yet on the inside, she said. Rinsink described the process as mechanical and very structured from taking orders to delivering food to customers. You give your order to the cashier, she'd call it into the back kitchen. They'd start preparing it, and it's a total assembly line preparation situation, Rinsink said. The food eventually made it to the serving windows where the waitresses were waiting. There were two windows. There was one for the Mexican side and then one for the American food side. They'd throw the food on your trays, Rinsink said. 
She added that someone like a seater would seat the person and the waitress would bring the trays of food. Diners used a mini pole flag to request drinks and food refills. Some of their meals were all you can eat. As a waitress, Rinsink's job was to carry trays, watch for raised flags, and to bring refills. She took on a few different roles in the restaurant. I started work off working as a seater, then a waitress, and after dropping a couple of trays, I switched to the line in the kitchen, she said. She explained that the floors were tile and slippery, and Casa Bonita was a large place. These elements combined with the first pace and lower pay model made lower pay made Rinsink rethink her initial role. I probably worked maybe six months out on the floor, and then I switched to the back kitchen because it paid more per hour, she said. But the back kitchen had its own challenges. It was hotter than hell back there, crazy fast pace, but it paid a few dollars more an hour than the cushy floor jobs, she said. I was rolling in the dough for a kid my age and spent it all on gas from my car and clothes from the stage and fashion bar. Resync also shed a little light on the reason why the food was so infamous. One issue was some of the food was frozen, like the enchiladas. He'd report to the kitchen at 5.30 a.m. on Saturday mornings to make enchiladas for the week. She said, we'd make hundreds and hundreds. Resync, Resync describes an assembly line where the employees would line up each with ingredients. She would spend the morning stuffing, rolling, and placing enchiladas in the pans. The pans would go into what Rinsink called the big refrigeration thing, where they stayed until someone ordered one. Rinsink added that the tamales were from cans. She admitted to eating from the American food side during most of her tenure at the restaurant. They had fried fish. Who knows what part of the fish it was, she said, but it really was delicious. It had a coating on it and grilled pineapple ring on top. By and large, that's what we lived on. Looking back on her tenure at Casa Bonita, Rinsing said she has good memories. It was a great place to work with so many of my friends employed there, she said. There was always an after-work party somewhere. It has been fun being an alum and finding out that friends I have made as an adult also worked there as their first job. An instant bonding experience. Some of them even met their future spouses on the job. Rinsing said she can't wait for the new incarnation of Casa Bonita to open. Stay tuned to the Jeff Glow transcript for news on the opening of Casa Bonita. Those with stories and photos of the old Casa Bonita should send them to Joe Davis, J. Davis, at ColoradoCommunityMedia.com. Local Voices, The Good Old Pioneer Days, Avenue Flashes, John Acall. For those of you who are history buffs, let me give you a brief history of Golden. Once upon a time, there was this big round rock flying around the sun. Eventually it cooled off and developed a climate. Once that happened, water began to show up, and through some great mystery, life began somewhere. Eventually it spread all over the rock. And this area became a wet tropical environment with these huge lizards roaming all over the place. At the same time, the upper layer plates of the rock began shifting and starting sticking up out of the surface, eventually becoming really big mountains. Then the climate dried quite a bit, and the giant lizards disappeared, 
and other animals took their place. Finally, people started showing up, and after that, condominiums and breweries took over the landscape. Okay, what did you expect? I said a brief history. Hundreds of millions of years condensed into one paragraph. A few of the details had to be left out, right? But that's all right. There are plenty of other people around Golden that can probably fill in the blanks a lot better than I can. Read on, and I'll tell you a few of them and where they will be gathering this coming weekend. As everyone knows, a lot of Golden's written history revolves around pioneers, gold rushes, and settlers. Compared to the vast period I just described, it's a mere speck of the region's time frame, but it's an important period just the same. It's where the history of Golden as an actual town began back in the 1800s. So what was life actually like around here in those days? Well, you can find out in person this coming Saturday, May 27th, at the Golden History Park. There's a free homestead open house that day with loads of activities for the entire family. If you are familiar with the place, it's a part of the Golden History Museum and Park and is located at the intersection of Arapahoe and 11th Streets. It's a collection of original structures from the area put together in a park setting that depict many of the typical things you would have seen when Golden was just beginning. There's a log cabin, one-room schoolhouse, blacksmith shop, and more. This Saturday, there will be people there in period dress to tell you all about the pioneer days and provide you with several demonstrations of things like how a blacksmith hammers metal into horseshoes. It's basically history come to life with knowledgeable folks there to show you how things used to be. The Homestead Open House will be running from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And you can find out more information by going to goldenhistory.org. Okay, so this next one is sort of an odd combination because it fuses some of the history of the 1800s with that of the era when those huge lizards I mentioned used to be around here. Yes, it sounds like a Hollywood movie, but it actually works quite well. On both Saturday and Sunday, May 27th and 28th, the Colorado Railroad Museum will be running the Dinosaur Express train. The idea here is for railroad tracks to meet dinosaur tracks for a day of exciting family fun. You can ride behind a coal-fired steam locomotive that departs every half hour from and follow the dinosaur tracks around the museum's 15-acre rail yard. Dinosaur-themed activities will be hosted by experts from Dinosaur Ridge and the Morrison Natural History Museum. Plus, you can check out a Jurassic-style Lego layout created by the Denver Lego Users Group and even build your own dinosaur creations. A character named Mr. Bones, along with their famous Spike the Railroad Dog, will be there as well. Food, drink, and tasty treats will also be available. The Dinosaur Express train brings together two of my favorite childhood favorites. That's for sure. Keep in mind the capacity is limited so advanced ticket purchases are recommended. You can do that as well. Let's find out more information by going to coloradorailroadmuseum.org. Admission to the museum is $10 for adults, $5 for ages 2 to 17, and $8 for seniors over 60. But it's free for museum members and children under age 2 do not require a ticket. The train rides run $4 for adults and $2 for ages 2 to 17. It is located at 17155 West 44th Avenue here in Golden. You can't miss it.
It's the place with all the trains in front of it. John A. Call is a well-known jazz artist, drummer, and leader of the 20-piece Ultraphonic Jazz Orchestra. He also is president of John A. Call Imaging, professional commercial photography, and multimedia production. He can be reached at jaimaging at aol.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.